The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Elisa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. This podcast brings together the best minds in the country to discuss the most important topics in the lead up to COP26. Throughout these podcasts, we've been exploring some of the challenges and possible solutions to climate change, looking at data and evidence, attempting to define what a net zero world post-COVID could look like, and what the policy and financial instruments could be to help us achieve that ultimate goal. Today, we're exploring an area that many will be familiar with, which is about the role of nature-based solutions to help mitigation and adaption to climate change. And it goes way beyond reforestation and tree planting, doesn't it, Elisa? Yeah, it's got quite broad scope. So I'm really pleased that we've got some experts with us to discuss it. Yeah, me too. And our guests today are both co-authors of the recently released Nature-Based Solutions for Climate Change paper, um, which looks at people and biodiversity. And I'm delighted they could join us to navigate our way through. Professor David Coombs is director of the Cambridge University Conservation Research Institute and lead author on the paper. David, hello and welcome. Good morning. And my other guest, Dr. Anna Kayrosh, is a marine and climate ecologist at Plymouth Marine Lab, which she tells me is an independent research institute. Is that right, Anna? That's right. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome. Lovely to see you. And this is a very dense and detailed paper, and I would highly recommend it to listeners because it's a really good read. But I wonder if we could start perhaps by setting some context. David, could you just explain to people what a nature-based solution is? Because I expect many of us think we know, but we may not know completely. Well, that's a very good first question. Um, clearly, we've got tremendous environmental issues facing us as humanity, and these are getting worse. And that's driven ultimately by growing populations, increased per capita consumption of resources, and very wasteful use of resources. And that's all creating major problems for us. So, so nature-based solutions are solutions that attempt to address these societal challenges. Uh, and they can involve working in a variety of ways with nature, um, but, but ultimately where we want to, to deliver benefits for both people and for biodiversity. That's the really key thing. We want to have a win-win here for people and biodiversity. And I sort of said in our introduction, they're not just about trees, because it's actually, I think a lot of people would think, oh, okay, nature-based climate solution, plant a tree. It, it actually goes across all parts of our, of our world, doesn't it? And, and it includes marine habitats and, and wetlands as well. That's right. So marine and coastal ecosystems can potentially represent uh, an important component of global nature-based solutions. It's a framework that has come, as in many other areas, it's come slower to the marine environment. But we have very clear benefits related to, for instance, what we call blue carbon habitats. So your kelp, seagrass, uh, mangrove, salt marsh ecosystems are very much at the fore of nature-based solutions underpinned by the oceans. Um, but equally, nature-based solutions are not just about carbon and forests and kelp. They're also about food and poverty and so on. So um, in many areas of the world, marine activities are subsistence activities, and that includes the UK, as well as remote places of the world like Southeast Asia um, and, uh, and the Western Indian Ocean. And so sustainable fisheries, for instance, sustainable harvesting practices are also potentially nature-based solutions. Um, and that's part of a, of a broader conversation uh, about sustainability and environmental issues as well as people. So it's not just about using those spaces to absorb carbon, it's about actually keeping that delicate ecosystem and habitat in balance. Yes, that's right. So we tend to think about these as socio-ecological systems and, and the solutions are developed around that framework. 
it was interesting because you said subsistence and I think you meant in terms of providing a living for people. But in the UK, I mean, a lot of people would think that they probably don't even realise that we have some of those precious marine habitats. I mean, I think people think about, you know, we're an island, we're surrounded by water and most of our relationship with water is about fishing. But actually, there's some very, very precious and special places, aren't there, on the kind of wetlands. But they have an important role for managing things like flooding as well, don't they? And that's part of that, you know, managing the habitat for the benefit of the people and for the creatures that live in habitats. That's right. So actually, um, uh, when we think about marine-based, nature-based solutions in the UK, you could think very much about being safe, uh, security, and especially in the context of nature-based solutions for climate change. So addressing uh, pressing issues like sea level rise, um, improved defense from storms and coastal erosion, which are a major issue for a lot of our coastal communities, are very much related to the development of nature-based solutions. And as as we said, uh, so, so it's not just about biodiversity, mitigating climate change, it's much broader issues that affect everyone, not not just deprived communities, not just those really reliant directly on the oceans and nature in general uh, for uh, for their livelihoods. What I found interesting reading the paper is that in some of your kind of recommendations, you're saying that we really need a set of guidelines around the investment in this. And this is an area where I think perhaps people might have encountered the understanding of nature-based solutions. They might have thought, oh, well, should I choose to pay to offset some carbon from a flight? I might invest in something that's an, a natural absorption. But actually, it goes far beyond that, David. The, the investment in nature-based solutions and the decarbonisation economy is quite complex, isn't it? Yes, it, yes, it is indeed. Um, and, I, and I think ultimately we're, as individuals, going to be having to pay for these uh, nature-based solutions, recognising that we're, we're consuming resources and not currently recognising the intrinsic value of nature and the immense economic value of nature because that doesn't appear in the way international finance and companies value things so ultimately it's, it's us who has to will have to pay for this, these nature-based solutions but I think they're absolutely worthwhile and they're not going to be a huge impact on our lives negative impact economically and the social benefits are going to be enormous so I, I think I think that's the way to think about it ultimately but the, the mechanism by which we pay for these nature-based solutions is going to be common complex and is going to evolve over over the next uh, decade or so and, and, and indeed will be a key part of the COP26 discussions. You use the term there nature as well as nature-based solutions David so I'm interested to just hear a little bit about this term which feels quite new to me actually nature-based solutions so so how can someone differentiate between what's good management of nature and this idea of a nature-based solution people getting involved in managing nature and what if, what if it is new and why are we talking about it in this kind of way? Yes, well, I, I think um, ultimately we've got to recognise that nature is supplying us with ecosystem services. Uh, there's a whole a host of different services they're providing and nature's providing. And that includes carbon storage in peatlands and in forests, uh, our natural peatlands and forests. And if we don't look after those peatlands and forests, uh, if we drain peatlands, uh, or we chop down forests, and that carbon is just being released into the atmosphere. And that comes at an, an enormous social cost that we're now appreciating. So there's, there's that would be one example of an ecosystem service, which is very relevant in the context of climate change. But there's other ecosystem services as well. Um, the way nature helps pollinators, the way um, nature uh, protects watersheds and reduces flooding risks. Just the fact that we all appreciate because of the last miserable year of lockdown <laughs> that uh, nature is wonderful for, for, 
for people to go out and enjoy themselves. Um, it's so nice to have a nice, clear, crisp spring, isn't it, where we can wander out of our bedrooms and cubby holes after so long in isolation and actually enjoy uh, the natural world. And, and many people have experienced that during lockdown. And that's that's a major social benefit. It might not be easy to put into a monetary term, but it is, and and or, or, or put in, translate into something which is sort of cash in people's pockets. But we have to recognise that that is a, a major benefit, which, uh, which ultimately we have to pay for. I agree with everything that David just said. Uh, what I might add is that Terminology can really help along action, and it's a really good way to crystallize ideas. And um, whilst it might seem topical, it's also a really good way to get people engaged. So for instance, we are hearing about nature-based solutions more recently, and it's, very, it's a very sort of buzzy theme at the moment. But I think ecosystem services, as David just described, so the benefits we derived from nature for humans, it was also a very topical terminology a few years ago, but there has been as, as the years progressed, um, there was this realization that we weren't acting on it sufficiently. And what's happened, I think, with nature-based solutions is just a way to really enshrine those ideas that benefits for nature come when there are benefits for society as well, and, it, and that they can be a way to deliver directly on the resolution of social problems and, and problems that affect everyone. So, for instance, uh, you know, the topic blue carbon also emerged a few years ago. And, and for example, I'm very engaged and have been for a few years in the climate change conference that runs along um, the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the COPS, which is the context of, of this conversation today. And so when we started talking about blue carbon um, at, at, at this conference a few years ago, people were really puzzled, you know, but why are you calling it blue? You know, why isn't it carbon? And it was really just such a nice way to just, you know, draw attention to the fact that there's this huge reservoir of carbon in the oceans and that the oceans have a really important role to regulate uh, the carbon uh, the carbon system and, and the global climate system. And by calling it that, people really realize that and that, you know, and now carbon from the oceans is very much at the fore of, of, of public uh, public awareness and public discourse. So um, I think this is the same with nature-based solutions. We are hearing more about it because it's a really nice way to enshrine those goals of, you know, using nature to deliver on, on societal goals. So you mentioned just then, you know, we're appreciating that there's a lot of things that we have there in the ocean. Um, and you could say the same about land as well. There's a lot of forests we already have. So can you help us distinguish between the value or how we should value taking care of what we already have and also managing that well and new projects? So that could be tree planting in the case of the land or perhaps introducing mangroves at the coast or something in the ocean, in the, in the sea. Maybe it'd be interesting to hear from both of you about that. Shall I kick off? So this that's an excellent question. What, what, where should we prioritise protecting what we have versus uh, creating uh, new habitats which provide nature-based solutions? And if we look across the world, the answer is really clear, actually. We need to really protect our remaining forests, our tropical forests, and we need to restore uh, damaged tropical forests in particular. Uh, and simply by doing that, if we can resource that and deliver that while benefiting local people, that's really important. Uh, that that could be a very rapid way of reducing our global emissions because that deforestation and degradation of forests is putting CO2 into the atmosphere, and we could um, we could reduce that substantially by protecting those forests. So that's that's what we need to prioritise on the on the international scale. Tree planting is actually could have a place, but it's, and, and it is in the public mind as the key thing to do, but it could be immensely damaging depending where it's done. So for example, back in the 80s in Chile, um, in the south of Chile, 
a lot of the native southern beach forests were cleared and eucalyptus and pine put in their place to create an industry. Now, if you clear forests, uh, native forests, you're actually releasing all that CO2 into the atmosphere. So, so off it goes into the atmosphere. That's not doing any good for the climate. And over, over the decades to come, the, the planted forests accumulate carbon slowly again. Um, so at some point, you pay off that carbon debt, initial carbon debt you've created. Um, but there really isn't any climate benefit at all to chopping down native trees and pop popping plantations in. And that's the huge worry internationally, that we allow that to happen uh, and that our accounting rules aren't, aren't well enough defined to recognise that, that problem and account for it properly. Because otherwise we will have no benefit from planting trees. Uh, if I might add to, to what David said, which was a, a really good, uh, a good, really good summary, is that uh, the, I think from sort of coming from the marine, the difference between what we already have and nature-based solutions is really about, uh, you know, in the, in, in the original definition or one of the most used definitions, which is from the IUCN, it's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Um, it's, it's about addressing the societal challenges in an effective and adaptive way. And that means, the, you know, the devil is in the detail in those two words, effectively and adaptively. So we have to realize that nature is changing very fast. Uh, and that's not in the future, it's right now. And presently, one of the main challenges, in addition to sort of, you know, overuse, degradation of habitats, it's really climate change. You know, it's really push, pushing that tempo really, really quickly for nature. And so um, what we already have is not going to remain as is. And so sustainable management and delivering on these uh, sustainability goals that are, uh, you know, sort of the ambition of, of nature-based solutions really requires us to understand uh, how our baselines are changing for these natural ecosystems and how we can continue to adapt our management practices to deliver that. So for instance, when, when we talk about nature-based solutions that address sustainable development goals one and two which are of the United Nations, which is about uh, reducing poverty, reducing hunger, we are really talking about addressing the way that we currently manage our, our natural resources in the oceans, so our fishing and shellfish and seaweed, which are harvested, and, and support livelihoods in many in, in, for, for many dependent communities, uh, not in the way that we are doing now. So we need to recognize that this changing environmental context modifies the distribution of our resources, so well where they are, but also how well they're doing, the health of our ecosystems. So really, uh, it's not just about recognizing what we have, it's understanding how we can adapt our management practices to address those changing that change, basically. And if we talk about climate change and, you know, we talk about nature-based solutions a lot in the, in the context of climate change mitigation, climate change mitigation is all about enhancing baselines. So it's about understanding how we can raise above the ability of our natural stores uh, for carbon. How can we promote that, that capacity, those stores accelerate the sequestration rates by conserving habitats, by restoring habitats. So it's really going beyond what we have now. It's actually modifying our practices to promote those those services that nature does for us. But it's not an excuse for, for, for just carrying on with our emissions as normal, is it? We have to decarbonize and reduce emissions as well as, you know, support and, if you like, extend uh, the nature-based, the, the, the natural ecosystems as well, don't we? We can't just, it's not an excuse for doing the one and not the other. Really pleased you pointed that out. That's absolutely critical that we uh, have a strong agenda to decarbonise first and foremost. That that's the most important thing we we can do. Uh, but we we, we recognise that we we can't decarbonise everything, um, uh, and so uh, or not immediately anyway. It's going to take a long time uh, to to decarbonise some of our industries. 
Um, and it's going to take a long while to, to build up solutions like uh, direct air capture and, and decks, but putting you know, methods for putting for capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and putting, putting them away somewhere safely. Those, those technologies are going to take time to develop as well. So we've got to recognise that there is a place for these nature-based solutions to the climate crisis, um, but we mustn't take the accelerator off decarbonisation. And we really must get governments on board to, to deliver that first and foremost. Yeah, we, we should move on to some of the policy recommendations and, and the UK's contribution in a minute. But I, I just wanted to talk just a moment about um, the, t- the possible tension between agriculture and agricultural use and, and nature-based solutions in the UK particularly, well, elsewhere, but particularly maybe in the UK, because we are a very agricultural dependent economy. And I think you quote a stat of saying that 72% of our land is taken up with agriculture. And it seems to me that that might be working against preserving some of these diverse ecosystems and habitats because of the industrialization of agriculture. So, so could we just talk about that for a moment and what we should be taking away from, from your paper and from your discussions? Well, should we have a little curious um, uh, history tour first? And if we go back to the 400, 500 years ago and look at our landscapes across the UK, they were already very heavily exploited right across the UK. Um, but in those days, our ability to destroy nature were limited uh, and and indeed we kept nature because it, it was valuable to us so we have about 40,000 um, what what are called ancient woodlands at least 400 years old um, in the UK and if you go back to the medieval period they were heavily used because they were kept across the landscape for people to people to extract wood from to extract charcoal from to build fences from uh, and those are little precious gems of, of, of ancient nature left in the UK now, highly dispersed across this agricultural landscape. And if you go back to the medieval period, our fields would have had a lot of biodiversity in them at those stage, at that stage. And it's only since the sort of, well, the 20th century that the advent of modern fertilizers and uh, insecticides, pesticides, uh, heavy machinery have really taken biodiversity out of the countryside. Uh, so that's, that's the context. Uh, and I think, what, what are we going to do next is the question. Where, where can we restore nature uh, in this highly modified landscape? And I think we could have a modest loss of agricultural land, uh, really productive agricultural land, if we, if we follow the principle of expanding around those ancient woodlands and, and protected high diversity grasslands and heathlands, our, our natural habitats. Rather, rather modest expansions of nature around those uh, uh, not cutting into our most productive agricultural land. Uh, but we would have to focus, if we really want to deliver climate mitigation benefits, we'd have to do quite a lot of forest planting in, in the uplands. Uh, that, and, and where we put those forests is a, is a key question. But we don't want to put too many of those on our prime agricultural land, because that would be just heading for another crisis, a food crisis, wouldn't it? Uh, or we'd be just importing the, pro- importing the, the food from elsewhere, and that may be resulting in environmental damage elsewhere as we expand um, cattle grazing in, in the Amazon or whatever to de- deliver us the food which we've managed to avoid de- providing here. So that, that, that is exactly the controversy which we, which we face and a difficult one. We, we do spill over a bit into diet though, don't we? Because a lot of our land is used to grow crops to feed animals to feed us. So if we could perhaps change our diet, I mean, everybody talks about not eating meat anymore, but it's it's not just because the production of the cattle, particularly for beef, creates carbon in themselves. It's because of the use of the land to create the feed to feed the cattle, which is in an efficient way of turning crops into fuel for humans effectively. So is that a useful 
part of this conversation or are we straying too much into telling people how to live their lives there? <laughs> well, I, I think we, we do need to adjust the way we, we run our lives, don't we? I mean, it's, we can't ultimately get out of this, this major crisis we're heading towards, we're, we're already entering without making personal some would say sacrifices, but I think uh, I think actually something like reducing our meat consumption. Uh, once we get the hang of it, we won't consider it a sacrifice. It, it, it's just not insisting everybody becomes a vegan overnight. But actually, if we all do our bit and reduce meat consumption, that that would make an enormous difference. Uh, and I, I I don't think we can anybody should really be promoting planting of uh, our uplands with with trees unless it cu it's coupled with this uh, commitment to to reduce our meat consumption otherwise we're just displacing the problem um overseas to somewhere else anna i think you wanted to jump in there yeah i just I wanted to add a perspective that i think perhaps some some or a lot of, uh, of of our sort of general public don't realize that you know these issues of space apply equally to the marine environment um so uh you know uh, the, the, the management of space and marine environment is, is, is goes through what we call marine special planning, which is is a sort of uh, glue policy that connects all the policies that regulate each of the the maritime sectors, which are many, you know, shipping, fisheries, aquaculture, conservation, ports. You know, there's there's so many activities, uh, energy, you know, in, in the marine environment. And if we look at these plans, um, you know, which typically are uh, placed within the ex exclusive economic zones of countries, which is also the place where we have the most ability to implement these nature-based solutions, because it's the areas where we have actually jurisdiction uh, to act upon uh, as, as nations. Um, if you look at these, at these plans for, for many countries, they are absolutely jigsaws. There is no space left. There's so much activity. And so when we talk mm -hmm. about nature-based solutions and, and putting in new you know, new ways to manage or new new attributing space to, you know, you know, I don't know, growing seaweed or uh, different ways of, of, of fishing. It's very difficult, actually, to put these things in place because there are so many industries that you need to deal with and so many policies that actually cut across each other that you have to deal with. So I think perhaps people don't realize that, you know, we tend to think of the ocean as this sort of vast expanse you know that where everything is possible but actually the ocean is packed with people and their activities you know and it, it's very hard as well yeah i love the idea the ocean's packed with people um i wonder if we could talk a little bit about about how we monitor and manage all of this because there are some quite really well-defined calls in your paper for better management for, for metrics for, for for actually taking responsibility for some of this so what are the different approaches and how much of this is a balance between governmental policy whether at national level or international level and independent actors like private sector or or investors i mean it, they might seem to be working against one another at times some of those interests so how are we going to manage and monitor this this, you know, getting the nature-based solutions protected and right moving forward. David, I'm going to ask you to kick off, I think. <laughs> okay. <well. laughs> Big question, sorry, but I think no, we need to drill good. down I, into I, this. I should, I should add that this briefing paper we wrote, I, I, I sort of led the charge, but it was a, a fantastic uh, group of people, uh, including economists and lawyers and ecologists like me. So your question is more of an economics one than an ecology one, but I'll attempt to answer it nonetheless. <laughs> then we'll so call I, a lawyer in to correct you at the end if necessary. <laughs> so I'm... Uh, I, I'm most familiar with attempts to reduce tropical uh, emissions and deforestations and, and the sort of payment mechanisms associated with that. And over the last decade or so, there's a, quite an elaborate system being established for measuring carbon in forests. 
uh, in the tropics and then tracking that carbon over time. And the complication for, for tropical forests, and I think it would apply to any, any nature-based solution which is, which is aiming to earn finance uh, from carbon finance, is actually you've got to uh, understand what the baseline emissions um, are. So what, what would have happened if there wasn't any intervention? And then what you get paid for is the difference between what would have happened and what you've managed to achieve. And so for, let's say, a, we've got a tropical country and it's got a, a billion tonnes of carbon stored in its forests. And over 40 years, it's deforested away and it's only got half a billion tonnes left. And if you'd left it another 40 years on that trajectory, it'd have no, no carbon left whatsoever in its forests. Uh, and so what you need to do is, is a policy is uh, implemented and, and these, these protection is financed. And let's say we manage to stop all deforestation. Then, then from then on, from that point onwards, uh, you've still got 500 uh, gigatons of carbon left in the forest and that, that stayed the same. And what you get paid for is the difference between what, what's staying in the forest and what would have, uh, would have been lost due to deforest, continuous deforestation. So that's a really complicated mechanism. And, that's, and actually measuring carbon above ground in forests is one of the easiest ones to, to, to do because, because the trees are there and you can get a tape measure and just measure the things. Measuring um, carbon in the oceans or... Uh, carbon in peatlands well actually that's a fairly straightforward one as well different systems are really quite hard to monitor carbon in but if in, in essence we, we need to pay for pay for the avoided deforestation the avoided carbon loss and, and that that is a complicated mechanism um, i think there's huge advances being made in the last decade and huge technological advances with remote sensing for many of these things so looking forward i don't i don't think it's a, a problem that we can't resolve but it, it does need a continued effort to get that right and that's just carbon. There's other nature-based solutions we have to monitor as well, yeah. aspects of nature-based solutions. And I accept you're not an economist, but there has to be a financial incentive in this system somewhere, doesn't there? And, and in order to scale up in the way that you, we need to, and I think you've called for in the paper, we have to put in some financial instruments there, don't we? Absolutely. Um, and there, I mean, there's a recent task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets, which was led by Mark Carney and others. And they recognised uh, that these nature-based solutions could be incredibly important in the decade ahead in, our, in the short term for helping us uh, uh, head towards zero, net zero. But they, they came up with the sort of potential and the sort of what, they, what the economists expect to be the actual delivery in the next decade. And the difference is quite stark, unfortunately. And they were thinking about the financing mechanisms which would allow that to, to happen. But it, that is a very difficult area of how, how we're going to use carbon finance to, 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 to create these nature-based solutions. But I, I, we absolutely mustn't lose sight that these nature-based solutions are, are not just about carbon. They're about yeah, other absolutely. benefits uh, yeah. for people yeah. uh, and for nature, uh, for, for biodiversity. And so, so we've got to come up with, with financing mechanisms which bring in these other sources of finance as well, some sort of blended finance, which um, for any particular site makes sense for the, for the landowner. I was struck by actually some of the stuff Anna said earlier about the, the way in which the ocean is all being used by lots of different people. And there's obviously lots and lots of stakeholders there, many with financial or economic interests. Do you think that we are having the conversations with the right people? I mean, in light of what you just said, David, that we always have to bring in um, a blended economic set of instruments that speak to all of those different stakeholders. Are we on the right track to have those people together? I think we are, but um, for the oceans, I, I would flip that question the other way around. So my view, from my experience, sort of from NBS in, in marine, marine systems, actually financial interest uh, in, 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 these, in these ideas can really actually accelerate 
uh, uh, policy development because when when there is a, a vested financial interest in the development of, of you know tax incentives and subsidies, um, um, people get talking to each other. You know, it, it's a motivation. It, it's a separate goal, as it were. <clears throat> and um, and when that happens, uh, you can see things developing pretty quickly. We have to remember about the definition of nature-based solutions. It's about bringing benefits to people and nature, right? And so financial benefits is a type of benefit. And so when, when that is there, it actually can can incentivate action and interest. Um, so so actually, I, I think that is correct, that, that, that does happen. And I think it's actually a driving force for the implementation uh, of these management strategies. And then to what extent are, are communities involved in those conversations? I mean, David, you rightly pointed out that in the most recent years, we've all, all benefited from our local nature. So we're parts of those communities in the UK. Um, uh, but obviously in this, in this social dimension, does that, does that financial incentive also include engaging communities of their kind of diverse natures around the world? Well, I think there's really exciting things happening in the UK context, isn't there? And, uh, you know, we've got wonderful charities, we're sort of a nation of nature lovers, and so National Trust, Woodland Trust, Rivers Trust, Wildlife Trust, RSPB, all these uh, conservation-minded charities. And uh, and they are bringing in huge support from the from the public. They've, they've, millions of people visit these sites every year. So I, I think uh, there's a real promise there. And, and then we've also got landowners who are just seeing that for actually rather small amounts of subsidy from the government, it's it's better for them and for much better for the environment to to do things like rewild their landscapes to, in a somewhat controversial word, but to re- reduce the uh, pressure on the land, perhaps by introducing uh, some sort of much lower density uh, grazing regime, introduce uh, different types of grazers to produce a, an interesting mosaic of natural habitats across their previous agricultural lands. So that that's also very much engaging the, the public, I think. So there, there's a lot happening in the UK, uh, which which is good. And it's just capitalising on that and making sure it scales, it's scaled up to the broader landscapes. I think there's a, a rosy future ahead. Anna? Yeah, I just wanted to give an example from the UK as well. So very recently, we've seen a large proportion of the Sussex coast being closed as a restoration area for kelp habitat. And that was, you know, bottom up. It was uh, the Sussex Wildlife Trust that sort of was at the head of that. It was a very uh, popular initiative initiative called Help Our Kelp, I believe was sort of the tagline for it. And uh, it, and it's been great. It's, it's been engaging the local community. It's going to deliver carbon benefits uh, for the for the UK that the UK can then um, associate with their you know national determined contributions. Um, but but it also protects the wildlife. You know, kelp are a fantastic uh, habitat for for biodiversity. They serve as nursery for a number of species that we eat and that we like to look at. Um, and so that, that's a really nice example, sort of a bottom-up approach to this. And th- that's happening elsewhere as well, because um, without the engagement of local communities, these things don't really work. You know, there's no point in having protected areas if the local community is not engaged, because that protection is not going to, not going to be enforced. So it's, it's a massive component uh, of the question, as Elisa rightly pointed out. Particularly internationally where we're looking at communities in the global south, you know, and we have this kind of slightly arrogant pr- proposal where we export all our carbon problems and plant some trees in somebody's backyard, which, which actually damages that local community's way of life. It damages their, the, the habitat and, 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 and is an imposition of our views and values on, on those communities. So, so that connectedness with communities is vital across other parts of the world as well, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, for, for habitat restorations in coastal areas, that is particularly true in small island developing states and in many states in the developing world, um, where uh, actually, um, for example, link, link, linked to the carbon accreditation um, um, and offsetting, um, you know, this leads to, to financial incentives for the countries and then leads to employment of, of, of you know, of, the, of communities in surrounding areas that actually help to replant habitat and maintain those habitats. So this is entirely true. Um, yep. I'm sure David has much more to add to that. Only to say that um, we're on a, a steep learning curve with these tropical deforestation and degradation conservation efforts. Uh, and, and I think mistakes have been made in the last decade as people have tried to implement these programs in the tropics. Uh, but it's really early days. And I, I mean, this is a, a huge long term problem. And the tropics could be really important in that. But, but doing it right, involving local people. Uh, uh, in the right way is absolutely essential. And we, we've just keep, got to keep thinking about the best way of achieving our goals without treading on the, the rights uh, of, of, of the landowners and native peoples in, the, in, in these tropical, tropical regions. And if I may add a small point, I think we, we haven't mentioned yet, which is the value of, uh, of local knowledge. You know, uh, so it's not just about getting communities engaged in the delivery, but it's actually harnessing their knowledge about these systems towards their delivery, you know. Um, so exporting knowledge from our systems to other places doesn't really work uh, because nature is different everywhere. And if something that is very much at the fore of nature-based solutions framework is about understanding the context within which they are implemented, and there is no one better uh, to tell us about that and the people that live in nature in, in where these nature-based solutions are being developed. So the value of what we tend to call indigenous knowledge and so on is really being recognised in this framework uh, and, and, uh, and harnessed. We're fast running out of time, but, you know, we've touched on the kind of four guideline principles, which are really important. But the paper makes a series, I think, you know, something like 18 policy recommendations, um, some of which we've, we've touched on. But but given that that we're framing this in the run up to COP and we're very keen to get the messages and the engagement out there, can you perhaps give me a couple of recommendations each from, from, from the policy recommendations that you think people, you know, whether it's politicians or policymakers or individual actors or even corporations should be taking on board. So what would be your top two or three policy recommendations, Anna? Um, I think that there are many authors in the paper, so I'm going to speak to the one that I think is most important for me. So for me, the most important aspect of these guidelines, uh, which I really uh, tried to advocate for when we met, actually we met with, we had the, we were very kindly invited by DEFRA to talk about uh, the, the briefing paper and sort of our perspectives as, as different authors with different expertise. So the one that I, I would like really like to speak to is the need for these NBS to be climate resilient. You know, the, the, the environment is changing very quickly. Um, creating uh, solutions for sustainable environmental management is typically a very resource intensive activity. We have many actors that we need to please uh, to, to bring together at the table. Uh, but we, and you know, and we require typically financial investment. And if these things are not resilient, resilient, if they're not sustainable over time, it's really going to be a missed opportunity for the planet and for people. But really, it's going to be really detrimental to the advancement of, of this framework. So for me, it's really like the need for the for these things to be looked at from the point of view of a changing nature uh, in the coming decades and identifying where climate resilience is and where the opportunities are uh, for the implementation of these strategies uh, in the changing climate. And what would typify that sort of resilience? I mean, is that choosing the right sort of project or area to support or is that, I mean, I mean, for those of us who, who are perhaps not as familiar with this? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, area of emergent uh, science to policy uh, interaction. And it's really just using the tools that we already have available to look at how ecosystems are changing. You know, climate change doesn't unfold everywhere at the, in the same way and at the same rate. So the different pressures are really context specific. We tend to talk about warming, which is like this overwhelming pressure, but even warming doesn't happen everywhere at the same time. And all of these pressures brought upon by climate change affect, affect natural systems, the natural capital and the service that David was talking about. So it's really using those tools to inform how these policies are developed. So this means, for example, looking at climate change modeling, you know, looking at the work of the IPCC and other, you know, colleagues in the UK, we have a very good, an advisory body, which is, uh, for example, for the Marine, which is the Marine Climate Change Impacts Partnership, MSIP. And they uh, really are, are tasked with, you know, advising the government on how climate change is unfolding, how is it changing uh, in different places at different rates, and we can use those tools that are already available in in academia and 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 in, in NGOs to really help inform how where we put these things and um, where where do we have the best chance of them actually being really effective as as time goes by and climate change unfolds. I find that kind of concept of longevity and cross-sector working really appealing because this is, it really embodies everything that the, this, you know, universities network is trying to do. It's a collaborative effort. As just as you were saying, David, this paper is a collaborative effort across many different um, schools and thinkers. And that's really, really important. Um, you're not off the hook, David. So a, a policy recommendation or two from you coming out of the paper, and then people will, we hope, go away and read it. I'm going to give a, a rather broad policy recommendation, and and uh, and this is based around the fact that many organisations have come together and come up with it, with this four high level uh, guidelines for nature based solutions, and we we we've, we've covered most of them actually during this discussion. The first one is that nature based solutions are not an alternative to decarbonising the economy. The second one is that nature-based solutions encompass protection, restoration and sustainable management of a, a wide range of, of land uh, and sea uses. The third one is uh, they must be designed with and for local communities. And the fourth one is uh, they must deliver measurable benefits for biodiversity and be designed to be resilient to climate change. So those principles, many of us adhere to. There's lots of people signed up to that. And the UK government has a real opportunity with the COP26 to, to take a, a global leadership role in, in making sure that these, these guidelines are put into practice. And there's a lot of work got to be done about how actually to deliver these uh, in, the, in the coming months. But I think that's the exciting opportunity uh, in the run-up to the COP26 to make sure that, firstly, we have nature-based solutions on the table, and secondly, that they meet those high-level guidelines. Perfect place to end. Thank you so much, David. That was terrific. And huge thank you to you, Anna, for joining us as well. Thank you. Thank you. And and obviously to Elisa, always a brilliant co-host. Hi, thanks, Amanda. Thank you for listening to The Climate Papers. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts generally or via the COP Universities Network site or through the Grantham Institute website or on theplanetpod.com. And be sure to tweet us at GranthamIC using the hashtag Climate Papers. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. Mm-hmm.